Okay, and welcome to Health Talk from Mars, another podcast here. And this is a special podcast because what we're doing is a reenactment of a lecture I'll be doing in Louisiana, New Orleans specifically. And I am going to debate a carnivore, Darren Schmidt. And so this is the preliminary talk. So here we go. So this talk is about what is the most ideal diet for longevity and also health span and also for the health of the planet and health of the environment, So, which is very, very important. You can't leave that out. So the question is, what should we eat um, for both the health of the individual and the health of the planet? And I'm going to construct for you what I believe is the most optimal diet um, using a number of different parameters that we'll discuss shortly. So our evolutionary history was such that humans, which go back about 200 to 300,000 years, basically foraged for food. They scavenged, they foraged, they weren't hunters. So we ate whatever we could get our hands on. That would be insects, that would be small animals, or that would be killed from another predatory animal, and then as many plants as we can eat without getting sick. So currently there are over 200,000 different plants that are edible. We consume about 200 of these plants. Um, when fire came into use, we expanded our diet, and then we ate foods such as beans, grains, and tuberous root vegetables. The growing of grains started about 10,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. So from a nutritional standpoint, it's important to delineate the difference between lifespan and health span. Health span means how long you live healthily, you know, at the end of your life versus longevity, which you could live a long time, but in a nursing home for 30 years, that's not health span. So again, we need to look at the big picture that is the health of the planet. So the ideal diet should include um, the treatment or the prevention of heart disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and degenerative diseases, which all play a role in reducing our longevity and our health span. Uh, stop the massive extinction of species. So right now, 200 species become extinct every 24 hours. Not good. So the optimal longevity diet we refer to, thanks to Dr. Roy Walford, the Cron diet. Cron diet stands for calorie restriction and optimal nutrition. So we know that fasting and periodic fasting is one of the healthiest things you can do to extend your health span and your lifespan. Um, maximize phytonutrient intake. So that would be phytonutrients or nutrients in plants. Both we want to get the number of those amounts as high as possible, and we want to diversify those phytonutrients. Um, maximize fiber intake, a critical uh, nutrient which is not considered to be necessarily essential, but essential for health and longevity because it's very important for your microbiome. Uh, we want to try to keep animal fat and animal protein as low as possible. Uh, there's been many studies to show that protein uh, is a serious problem when it comes to uh, causing various types of diseases like cancer, 
and heart disease. A little note on human breast milk. So when we analyze breast milk of all mammals on earth, humans have by far the lowest amount of protein. It's very interesting. And the reason for that is because the human brain is made up of 70% fat. So we are, in essence, all fatheads. And so to support a fathead, one doesn't need as much protein. One needs more fat, especially omega-3 fatty acids. So we also want to keep arachidonic acid as low as possible. Arachidonic acid is what causes inflammation in the body. Arachidonic acid comes pretty much all from animals. If you're eating a purely plant-based diet, you're not getting very much arachidonic at all. Okay, so we want to minimize the amount of environmental toxicants and toxins that we're exposed to. So that means eating lower on the food chain. Avoid foods with high ages, advanced glycated end products. So those are products that are found in processed foods and also in foods that we cook. So depending upon your cooking method. <clears throat> so charbroiling is the worst way to cook something because it produces the most ages. And ages have been uh, definitely linked to premature aging and a number of different diseases. So eat foods as unprocessed as possible so we can conserve their nutrient content and not oxidize various compounds. Fermented foods are a plus because um, they aid in the microbiome. So there's a number of, we're going to just go through this very briefly, there's a number of different biomarkers that we can look at that I think most of us are going to agree with. And so I'm going to go through these very quickly. So these are things that are associated or linked to heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, stroke, etc. So if we look here, um, cholesterol. There's a lot of controversy around cholesterol. Pretty much, I think most cardio, cardi, cardiologists would agree that you want to keep your cholesterol 150 to 170, HDL around 60 or above, LDL below 90. Now studies are showing if you get under 55, that's even better. Uh, various other inflammatory markers like ferritin indicate how much tissue levels of iron you have. Fibrinogen is blood clotting. Hemoglobin A1c is how high your blood sugar is on an average over the last two and a half months. C-reactive protein is another inflammatory marker. We want to keep those down as low as possible. Uh, I'm going to, again, skip over some of these. Fasting insulin, we want 7 or below. Blood pressure, 110 over 70. They've changed the parameters for high blood pressure. Now there's a stage 1 pre-hypertension, which is 130 over 85. So the lower your blood pressure up to a certain level, the better. Vitamin D levels should be between 50 and 70. You want to get your testosterone in the, in the optimal range. Omega-3 fatty acid content in cell membranes should be above 8%. Uh, Insulin-like growth factor for adults should be less than 120. As you go higher, um, it's going to cause more problems with cancer because uh, it's going to stimulate the growth of various types of cancer cells. And lastly, TMAO. TMAO stands for trimethylamine N-oxide. And this is a compound that pretty much is made mostly just from people that are eating animals. 
If you're not eating animals, if you're eating a purely plant-based diet, you don't really make much of that. Now we want to talk a little bit about blue zones. So years ago, they discovered that there's five areas in the world where people live the longest, the highest number of centenarians. And they hired these demographers and they went in and they circled these areas with a blue pen, hence the name blue zones. So five of them are two in the Mediterranean, Sardinia, Icaria, and then Okinawa and Costa Rica, one peninsula in Costa Rica, and then the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda. So what we know about them is they consume 58 to 75% of their calories from carbohydrate. So again, that matches up with some other ideal numbers that we want to see from the diet. What do all blue zones have in common? Well, in Okinawa, before each meal, they say harahachibu. Harahachibu is eat until we're 80% full. So this was something they've been saying for a long time. So that's calorie restriction right there in a nutshell. Lower levels of processed foods, lower intake of animal protein, increased intake of legumes, so basically, the blue zones eat legumes three times a day. So, and there's a number of reasons why those legumes are really beneficial for us. High levels of fiber. So fiber is something that is critically important for your gut microbiome. Now we realize that most serotonin gets released from the gut, which is responsible for proper brain health and good mood but also that microbiome is responsible for decreasing colon cancer, breast cancer, cardiovascular disease. Uh, fiber decreases the glycemic effect of foods. So if you're eating a carbohydrate food that doesn't have any fiber, it's gonna cause your glucose to go up a lot higher and a lot faster versus if there's a bunch of fiber, it's gonna dampen the effect of the glycemic index. Here is a slide that I want to present, and it's comparing the Okinawan centenarians with Okinawan elders and then U.S. elders. And you can see some of the most prominent features. Cholesterol is 152 for the Okinawan centenarians. For the U.S. elders, aged between 65 and 74, they came in at 221, so considerably higher. Uh, the Okinawan centenarians had an HDL of 50. So if you divide that into the 152, you get a three to one ratio. This is the most startling stat, I think of all, that Okinawan centenarians, only one and a half percent of these centenarians have hypertension, as opposed to the US elders, 61%. So something obviously what they're doing is really working. Their level of homocysteine is less than eight. Flavonoid intake is 101 uh, gram, milligrams per day as opposed to American U.S. elders, which is about 13 milligrams per day. Uh, total calories from Okinawan centenarians came in at 1,539 U.S. elders, 2,176. So quite a difference in caloric consumption. They, they ate three times more grains, mostly refined grains for the U.S. elders, um, wheat products in Okinawan centenarians was pretty low. Nuts and seeds and sugars and oils were almost negligible to even speak of. But their legume consumption came in at 75 grams per day. 
and that's because they eat them three times a day compared to the U.S. elders, only 25. Um, if you look at their meat consumption, egg consumption, and dairy consumption, it was really like nil. Their vegetable consumption came in at 1348, as opposed to U.S. elders at 189. So that's about six times, seven times more uh, than what U.S. elders consume. Sweet potatoes, this is the big thing about the Okinawans. They consumed 1174 grams uh, per day of sweet potatoes. Uh, some of them were purple sweet potatoes. The uh, data was not available for U.S. elders, but it's small. I can tell you that. So those are the prominent features in the blue zone uh, dietarily-wise, at least in Okinawa. So the nutritional influences on disease, um, there's many studies that have been done showing that animal protein, uh, Dr. Walter Willett, uh, Maria Linder, uh, even um, Walter Willett uh, have come forth and stated that animal protein is, is a real problem. Ansel Keys in his six and seven country studies back in the 50s determined that animal protein was number one and then animal fat was number two as far as cause for cardiovascular disease. So here we have a a little slide of Dr. Walter Willett's book, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy. He's a professor of epidemiology and nutrition from the Harvard School of Public Health. And he made this statement, which I think is fairly profound. If you step back and you look at the data, the optimal amount of red meat that you should consume is zero. So I'm like, oh, that's a kind of a strong statement. This is a page out of Maria Linder's book, showing that animal protein has the highest correlation of cardiovascular disease uh, and any other factor. So focus in on the Crohn diet, calorie restriction, optimal nutrition. So we, know we need to consume a large amount of diversified phytonutrients. Large amounts of phytonutrients are found in plants. As many diversified plants as we can get is important, such as arugula, wild greens, purslane, pomegranate seeds, carrots, and beets. I can't emphasize enough that we need to diversify the wild foods that we eat. <clears throat> so one of the blue zones is in Ikaria, <clears throat> which is an island off the coast of Turkey. It's part of Greece. And in 1945, they exiled 13,000 communists to this island, and they had to survive and they survived off of the land. So they survived off wild greens. If you go today to Greece and you look at a menu of most restaurants, they'll usually have something called horta. Horta are wild greens that grow wild, basically. Uh, velita are the greens that come from amaranth. So they ate over 80 different varieties of plants, which is just incredible. And that's going to give you a wide array of these phytonutrients. We mentioned maximize dietary fiber to enhance microbiome, but also to remove toxins and toxicants. So the fiber has binding qualities that are really important. Uh, we talked about the fact that it downregulates your glucose uh, from going up, but also fiber speeds bowel transit time. So that means that stuff that's in the intestinal tract has less time to ferment 
to produce toxic compounds that may cause polyps and eventually cancer of the colon, which is an epidemic in the United States. Avoid dietary sources of toxicants. So toxicants are concentrated on the higher end of the food chain. So that would be animals, and that would be larger fish, swordfish, tuna fish, sharks. Sword, they, those, all those fish are going to have a much higher level of toxicants in them that we want to try to avoid. Um, we talked about the microbiome and how essential it is for your health, for your mental health, and also for producing compounds in the body that are protective against cancer and cardiovascular disease. So there's a number of researchers, Dr. Dennis Burkett and Dr. Will Bulsowitz, more contemporary. He wrote a book called Fiber Fueled. And then recently, um, Jeff Leach wrote a book called Rewild. And with the help of Dr. Rob Knight, went and classified different bacteria in various uh, places in Africa, specifically the Hudza, and found that their microbiome was tremendously different from ours, and that they had no uh, none of the diseases that we have in terms of Crohn's disease, diverticulitis, irritable bowel syndrome, stomach ulcers, GERD, etc. And that has to do with the type of fiber and the amount. They consumed more than 100 grams of fiber per day. So here's an important little item with regards to a toxin, uh, and that would be iron. Iron is something you can't live without, but you can't also live with it if you have too much of it. So one-eighth of the population contains one of the genes that codes for hemochromatosis. If you have full hemochromatosis and don't know it, you will die by age 30 of fulminant heart disease because everything's going to oxidize. If you have a tendency to store extra levels of iron, uh, extra levels of iron are definitely going to be problematic and can increase your risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, chronic inflammation in the body, chronic infections. So, you know, if you carry that gene, and a lot of people do, you want to make sure that your iron tissue levels are low. And that's an easy test that we can measure. So cancer and heart disease comes from a lack of phytonutrients and flavonoids. And they all come basically from plants. Thousands of phytonutrients in plants in thousands of studies have showed how protective they are. So I'm just going to rattle off a few flavonoids and phytonutrient compounds. So carotenoids, quercetin, anthocyanidine, elagic acid, proanthocyanidine, rutin, tocotrienols, lutein, zeaxanthine, astaxanthine, lycopene, delphinidin, epigallocatechin, gallate, resveratrol, secasolariceae, resinol, lutein, apigenin, uh, cruciferous vegetables, indole-3-carbonol, uh, glucosinolate, sulforaphane, uh, matarezinol, enterolactone, enterodiol, isoflavones, genistein, daidzine, glycetin. So all of these compounds are found in plants. If you don't eat plants, you don't get them, you lose the opportunity to get these great protective substances. Also, mushrooms. So mushrooms, we could do a whole talk just on mushrooms. 
They contain shiitake mushrooms, contain lentinin, which has been shown to be uh, cancer protective and also to treat cancer. Um, Anato. So we have a little slide here. Me down in the Amazon, and I'm pointing to the Anato tree. In the background there, Anato has several compounds. One of them is GG protein, which is garineal geraniol, which has been shown to be extremely important with regards to cardiovascular disease prevention and also increasing testosterone, the latest studies are showing. But it also has tocotrienols, of which we get very little of. Tocotrienols have been shown to be very therapeutic for osteoporosis, cardiovascular disease, and cancer protection. All right. So right here, this is a list that you'll need to go over by yourself. I just listed a variety of uh, foods. My 20th, my 20th uh, healthiest foods in the world to eat. Uh, they include, you know, sweet potato, as mentioned by the Okinawans, quinoa, black beans and lentils, broccoli, berries of all types, maki berries, uh, salal berries, blackberries, black raspberries that contain elagic acid. Uh, pomegranate seeds, we mentioned very protective against breast and also prostate cancer. Uh, dandelion greens, really important. Instead of spraying them with toxic uh, herbicides, we should eat them. Fermented soybeans, natto, uh, is really important. It's got some vitamin K in there, which is protective against osteoporosis. Spirulina, which contains a tremendous amount of carotenoids. Carotenoids get concentrated in the skin, very protective against the damaging effects of ultraviolet light. So if we are talking about the ideal diet, we must talk about botanicals. Botanicals are critical for our bodies because botanicals give us a whole nother array of phytonutrients. To omit botanicals because they're plants uh, would be rather absurd and I would probably be out of business because I prescribe a lot of botanicals. Um, there's a significant overlap between botanicals and herbs that we cook with. We should be exploring as many different ways as possible to use herbs and botanicals in our food. One example is turmeric and pepper. We know that pepper, black pepper, can greatly enhance the utilization of turmeric, so good to use together. So I just want to mention about the five pillars of longevity. The five pillars of longevity are espoused by Dr. Walter Longo, who was a disciple of Roy Walford. And he wrote the book, The Longevity Diet, which I urge all of you to read if you haven't. So, And he lists the different uh, ways that we can prove something to be correct. And number one, obviously, randomized controlled clinical trials. Um, in some cases, that's not possible. Uh, basic juventology research, the study of youthfulness. Uh, epidemiological studies where we look at different bands of people and we determine their health based on what they're eating. Uh, centenarian studies, that, was, that would be the blue zones. And then studies of complex systems. So we want to look at all of these different ways to be able to prove a certain point. So one of the you know critiques is that, well, observational studies, they don't really count. And I would like to make a comment on that. 
So we still don't really know for sure that tobacco smoke causes lung cancer. But everyone would agree today that cigarette smoke causes lung cancer. So when, if you did a study, observational study, you took 100 non-smokers and 100 smokers, and you analyzed, you matched them up as well as you could for age and sex and where they lived, et cetera, uh, socioeconomic status. And at the end of 20 years, 20 of the smokers got lung cancer and one of the non-smokers got lung cancer. And you repeated that study a thousand times and all of the results came out similar. I think eventually you can conclude that tobacco smoke is a pretty strong uh, causation for developing lung cancer. All right. Environmental toxicity, fat stores of animals, bone, organ meats, liver, and kidneys, they bioconcentrate, bioaccumulate these toxins. So again, if you want to avoid as many toxins as possible, eat lower on the food chain. Ages, the most prominent source of advanced glycated end products would be processed red meats. So that would be like bacon, charbroiled stuff. Um, those things can be very problematic. Um, genetically modified foods. We don't want to forget about them. Incidentally, we spray 4.5 billion pounds of glyphosate around the world today. It's a water-soluble toxicant, not something that you want to be exposed to. Um, what we know is the vast majority of glyphosate is being sprayed on crops, monocultured crops, such as soy and corn that are genetically modified. So if you avoid all animal products, you're going to avoid a great source of glyphosate. Um, the other toxin or toxicant would be antibiotics. So people don't realize that we're constantly being exposed to antibiotics. Uh, the coming plague uh, was a book written years ago that talks about that overuse of antibiotics. Well, 80% of the antibiotics that we use in the United States comes from animal agriculture. So if you eliminate animal agriculture, you eliminate those 28 million pounds of antibiotics. <clears throat> so one of my favorite researchers and naturopaths uh, who passed away a few years ago, Dr. Walter Crinion and his associate, Dr. Prezarno, the founder of Bastyr University, wrote a wonderful book called Clinical Environmental Medicine. And it's a must read if you're interested in environmental health. And so this is a little clip, um, basically from Dr. Crinion a few years ago, that he talked about what would be the ideal diet to avoid the most toxicants and toxins. And here it is. And then dietarily, while well, you're looking at avoiding the dirty dozen fruits and vegetables, the Environmental Working Group has their dirty dozen, their shopper's guide. You avoid that because those are organophosphate neurotoxic pesticides. Don't want those. Um, eating a diet that probably the healthiest diet is more of a Mediterranean-style diet. Um, <clears throat> but you have to have a lot of the whole fruits and vegetables and grains because that feeds your microbiome, which is critical in this whole process. Having a more vegetable-based diet means your urine is more alkaline. 
And if your urine is acidic, you recycle all the toxicants. You just suck them back in. So getting a, a more of an alkaline pee, which is mostly diet-based. Okay, so Walter Crinion is a very well-respected researcher and scientist, along with Dr. Prezarno. And I would say I would definitely listen to their advice. So from an environmental sand standpoint, um, there's a book, Elizabeth Colbert, she wrote called The Sixth Extinction. Just to give you a heads up, 200 species of plants, animals, and insects become extinct on a daily basis. That is more than the extinction rate of 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs became extinct. So people should be getting a little nervous about this, and they should think about the health of our planet, and they should think about species extinction. So the environmental health of the planet is determined by how many species we have, uh, deforestation, land usage, loss of biodiversity, water usage, overfishing, dead zones. So here we are down in New Orleans, uh, Gulf of Mexico. If you haven't seen the movie documentary Mission Blue, it's a biography of Sylvia Earle, who's an oceanographer. She categorized thousands of species of seaweed and algae, and she's a brilliant researcher. Well, the largest blue zone, or one of the largest blue zones in the world, is right here in the Gulf of Mexico, because the Mississippi River drains into that. So why is that? Well, probably the number one reason is nitrogenous waste from animal agriculture. That would be pig farms. So all of that nitrogenous waste, poop and urine, basically ends up in the river, goes down the river, dumps into the, um, <clears throat> the Gulf of Mexico and kills all the you know wonderful wildlife that we have, including different types of seaweed. The other thing is we mentioned about antibiotics. 28 million pounds of antibiotics basically are used in animal agriculture. So all that from the animals goes down the Mississippi River, goes into the Gulf of Mexico. Glyphosate, which is sprayed on genetically modified crops to feed the animals, goes in the river, goes down the river, kills all the algae and all the other wildlife. So, you know, you should be especially sensitive here in New Orleans about animal agriculture. All right, so there's some compounds called per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances that stay persistent in our bodies. They don't leave our bodies without provocation. So the only way to remove these compounds is to use a chelating agent, such as cholestyramine, which is a drug that's used to sequester bile salts to lower cholesterol. So soluble fiber, certain botanicals, such as chlorella and green tea can be very useful in removing these uh, ubiquitous toxicants from our environment. All right, so this is a very important uh, diagram here that I would like to take a little bit of time to talk about. And this demonstrates like the amount of land that we have and what we use it for. So 71% of the, of the, the earth is water. 29% is land. Of that 29% of land, 
71% is habitable. And so if we take that 71% habitable land from the 29% of land, we get that almost half of that land is used for agriculture. And then 38% is forests. Less than 1% is where humans live. So just a tiny little spot of that. If we break down the agricultural, you know, 50%, uh, most of that's coming from animal agriculture. So if we look at a percentage, it's about 77% of that 40, 46% is devoted to animal agriculture. And only... Uh, 20-something percent is for plants consumed directly by humans. So if we take a further detailed look and we take a look and see uh, of that 77% of land that's used for livestock and animals, only a very small percentage, 18% uh, of that uh, is supplied, calories-wise, is supplied by those animals whereas 82% of calories from the plants, which only make up 23% of that total agricultural land. So there's a gross imbalance there uh, of plants supplying calories, and yet we're using all of this land uh, to, to raise livestock, which is not sustainable. 37% of protein comes from those animals, but you know, 63% come from plants. Anyway, if you look at this particular diagram, certainly you'll see, wow, that's really not a good use of our land. So currently in the U.S., we consume over 90% of our calories. Uh, we consume over 90% of our animal protein from CAFOs. Those are concentrated animal feedlots. If we switched all of our livestock to grass-fed, it would require about three Earths in order for that to happen. So we just don't have the land <clears throat> to free raise uh, animals. So here is a just a small interview with Michael Pollan, who wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food. And he was asked the question, by the year 2050, we're going to see 9 billion people on Earth. And so if we were to ingest meat, um, the same as we do in the United States today, like, how much would actually be sustainable? And his response is the following. Oh, uh, per meat? And including dairy. Like yeah, I, I, I don't think I, I, I don't know enough. Um, but yeah, it would be on the order of a couple ounces a week. You know, it's not going to be uh, the way we're eating it now. We're gorging on meat. We're eating huge amounts. And does that include cheese, too? Like yeah, two yeah. Ounces total? Yeah, two cheese and milk. Two ounces and, a week. And so he was famous for the simple statement, eat whole foods, not too much, and mostly plants. So he's someone that I would take advice from. Uh, he's done a lot of research in the field of sustainability. Um, if we take a look at species extinction and loss of biodiversity, this is a serious problem. And if we take a look at fresh water usage, this <clears throat> is a little table here that's showing the unbelievable amount of fresh water that beef and sheep and pork and butter and cheese and chicken. And so if we go down the list, clearly, if we're going to like save our water supply, 
we need to think about going more plant-based. Uh, this is another slide here that shows land use of foods per 1,000 kilocalories. As we mentioned before in that other slide, um, a very large and disproportionate amount of land use goes towards animal agriculture that only supplies a very minimal amount of calories. This is a wonderful diagram here that demonstrates about species extinction, especially about wild fauna. So 10,000 years ago, humans made up of only 50,000 tons, about a million people. And then wild fauna made 200 million metric tons. So that is 4,000 times more wild fauna weight-wise than humans. If we fast forward to 1970, we see that all of a sudden the wild fauna go to less than half of what they were before. So from 200 to 80. So in humans, go all the way up from 50,000 to 200 million, the same as the wild fauna with 10,000 years ago. The livestock to feed those humans, 400 million metric tons. Okay, so fast forward just 40 years ahead of 1970, and suddenly humans double in weight from 200 million to 400 million, which is incredible. Wild fauna go from 80 to 40 million metric tons. The livestock to feed those humans goes to a billion tons. And if we take a look at what it's required to feed them, <clears throat> because livestock are relatively young, usually cows are slaughtered in the first one year to two and a half years, uh, chickens <clears throat> and pigs even younger. And so pound for pound, they consume food at a level five, time greater, five times greater than what humans consume. So that's crazy. So these billion pounds of livestock require a total of two billion pounds of feed a year, which is all of that feed could be actually, if it was grown plant food, could feed so many humans on earth. Right now, there's 800 million starving humans on the planet. And a lot of it has to do because of meat consumption from wealthy countries. If we just grew plants that were indigenous to these different areas of the world where people are starving, they would do much, much better. When you look at the resources that we have, uh, certainly we're, we're not doing a very good job uh, being custodians of the planet. So as mentioned before, 200 species become extinct of plants, insects, and animals every 24 hours. That's crazy. So one of the big reasons to become fully plant-based um, is you're going to save biodiversity. This is a little clip here about fish, another sobering thought, which is I think that we all need to be extremely careful about. Here it is. The UN reported that three quarters of the world's fisheries are overexploited, fully exploited, or significantly depleted due to overfishing. The oceans are under siege like never before, and uh, marine environments are in trouble. And if we don't wake up and do something about it, um, we're going to see fishless oceans by the year 2048. That's the prediction from scientists. The fact that when people look at fishing sometimes, they're only looking at the fact of the animals who are actually consumed by humans, and we're not necessarily looking at all the animals who are caught in the drift nets, all the other animals who are killed 
um, in the industry. Okay, so now we're going to move on to, I mean, the environment is a, is a slam dunk in terms of fully plant-based diet. If you want to add a little bit of meat to that, you could. Uh, but from an environmental standpoint, not, not a good idea. So the ethics. <clears throat> so ethics, another slam dunk. On the planet Earth, all animals have coexisted with plants. For millions of years, they've relied on plants for survival. Even the carnivores have relied on plants because they eat the animals that eat the plants, that live off of those plants. Humans, from an evolutionary perspective, should be caretakers of the planet and should view all life as sacred. To enslave, torture, uh, 70 billion animals every year for human consumption just seems incredibly unethical. We mentioned 200,000 edible plant foods that we know of on the planet. We only eat about 200 of these. Uh, we have enough food to worldwide feed 12 billion people, but yet 800 million people are starving to death. Anyway, so the conclusion of this talk is the evidence is clear. Plant-based diets have a profound impact on disease prevention and overall health. By prioritizing whole nutrient-dense plant foods, individuals can significantly reduce their risk of developing a range of chronic health conditions, leading to a higher quality of life and improved longevity, plus greatly benefiting our environmental ecosystem, thus allowing other species to survive. I'm going to leave you with this. Lokaha samastaha sukino bhavantu. May all beings everywhere be happy and free. May the thoughts words, and actions of my own life contribute in some way to that happiness and to that freedom for all. Thanks for listening to this podcast and one little comment. Go vegan! All right, over and out.